The following audio is from River City Baptist Church in Richmond, Virginia. For more information, visit us online at rivercityrichmond.org. Again, Jesus called the crowd to him and said, Listen to me, everyone, and understand this. Nothing outside a person can defile them by going into them. Rather, it is what comes out of a person that defiles them. After he had left the crowd and entered the house, his disciples asked him about this parable. Are you so dull, he asked? Don't you see that nothing that enters a person from the outside can defile them? For it doesn't go into their heart, but into their stomach, and then out of the body. In saying this, Jesus declared all foods clean. He went on, what comes out of a person is what defiles them. For it is from within, out of a person's heart, that evil thoughts come, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. All these evils come from inside and defile a person. It's 3 a.m., and you are suddenly woken up to the deafening sound of a smoke alarm in your house. You sit straight up, your heart is pounding, and all you can think is, this is not what I want to be dealing with. So you say, I know what to do. I'm, I'm just going to lay back down. And you take your pillow, and you put it over your head, and you plug your ears to no avail. So now you're not just tired, you're angry. So you slide your feet off the bed, you stand up, and you shuffle your way downstairs toward the peeling sound coming from the smoke alarm. You grab a shoe, you walk up to the thing. You, you think you might smell some smoke, but you're, you're too tired to, to care about that. You walk up and you start sm- smashing the smoke alarm to smithereens. You then shuffle your way back upstairs with your hand over your mouth, <coughs> coughing as you return to your bed. It's an absurd example, covering our ears, smashing the smoke detector, all so you don't have to deal in the middle of the night with the inconvenience of a fire. But as absurd as it may sound, Jesus insists that this is the hallmark of human religion, treating the symptom so that you don't have to deal with the real problem. Please turn with me in your Bibles to Mark chapter 7. Mark 7, throughout this gospel according to Mark, Jesus is repeatedly clashing with the religious leaders of Israel. And this encounter we're looking at again this morning is the longest, we could call it conflict speech, the longest conflict speech in the whole gospel according to Mark. And here's what I think is the main idea of our passage this morning, which I hope arises right out of these verses, 14 to 23. Here's the main idea. Religion works from the outside in. The gospel transforms from the inside out. Religion works from the outside in. The gospel transforms from the inside out. We'll think about this in two movements. Uh, The first we'll see in verses 14 to 19 is your food is clean. And the second, verses 20 to 23, is your heart is not. Number one, your food is clean. Number two, your heart is not. First, 
your food is clean. Look there at verse 14. Again, Jesus called the crowd to him and said, listen to me, everyone, and understand this. This command to listen shows up nine times in Mark's gospel, and every time it's in the context of a solemn pronouncement. And these pronouncements are not just solemn, they're also divine. We should hear the ring of the Old Testament in passages like Psalm 50, verse 7, listen, my people, listen, my people, and I will speak, I am God. Or Psalm 81, 8, hear me, my people. And I will warn you, if you would only listen to me, Israel. So when Jesus shows up and says, listen to me, everyone, and understand this, he is grabbing the microphone of heaven to speak for God and as God. And here is his divine pronouncement. Verse 15. Nothing outside a person can defile them by going into them. Rather, it's what comes out of a person that defiles them. The the Pharisees assumed this kind of domino effect of defilement. Defiled hands create defiled food, creates defiled people. They assumed that the contagion of moral uncleanness kind of worms its way into us from the outside. So this statement from the lips of Jesus in verse 15 is a bombshell because it overturns their perspective. It flips it over. If they had ears to hear, they would realize that Jesus is not just giving a diagnosis that's different than theirs, but actually he has the audacity to walk into this encounter with these religious PhDs and give a diagnosis that is more radical than theirs. He's not saying, oh, you religious leaders, your bar of purity is way too high. Come on, let's, let's chill out a bit. Let's lower it a bit. No, Jesus is actually raising the bar. He's taking the need for holiness, the need for purity, the need for cleanness, holy living before a holy God. He's taking that need far more seriously than they do. They were fixated, we learned way back in verse 4, they were fixated on what? Scrubbing the inside of cups and pots and kettles and the like. But Jesus is saying, if the inside of vessels contaminates them, how much more the inside of persons. Verse 17, after Jesus had left the crowd and entered the house, his disciples asked him about this parable. One feature of Mark's gospel is that he often places moments of divine revelation inside a house. Have you ever noticed that as as we've been studying this? Chapter 1, Jesus heals Peter's mother-in-law in in Peter and Andrew's house. Chapter 2, Jesus dines with uh, sinners and tax collectors inside Levi's house. Chapter 5, Jesus raises Jairus' daughter from death inside the synagogue leader's house. And here in chapter 7, Jesus again withdraws from the interruptions and the mixed motives of the crowd to address his disciples in private in a house. They ask him about the meaning of this little saying that people are defiled not by what goes in, but by what comes out, to which he responds, verse 18, are you so dull? In other other words, after all this time I've spent with you, 
After all this time I've invested in you, do you still not comprehend any spiritual truth? One commentator puts it well, the disciples are like a dog looking at the pointed finger of its master rather than the object to which the finger points. They're like people looking at the stained glass window of a cathedral from the outside, which is to say they're still like the rest of Israel and its leaders, stuck on the outside looking in when it comes to comprehending spiritual truth. Jesus then explains, don't you see that nothing that enters a person from the outside can defile them? Verse 19, for it doesn't go into their heart, but into their stomach and then out of the body. This is just a commonsensical observation, very earthy one, right? No matter what food you eat, it's chewed, swallowed, digested, and expelled. It passes through the stomach, which is to say it has nothing to do with the soul. And then at the end of verse 19, Mark inserts his own inspired commentary. It might be set off in a parenthesis in your Bible. The end of verse 19. In saying this, Jesus declared all foods clean. This insertion from Mark is significant because Mark rarely steps on stage as an actor in his own story. So, so what is this revealing? Well, to understand it, We've got to rewind the clock of redemptive history all the way back to Leviticus chapter 11. We won't turn there, but you can just take my word for it. It's a whole long catalog of animals, foods that are off limits to the people of Israel. The purpose was to drill into the psyche of a nation that approaching God is not a casual affair. The unclean foods in the history of Israel, the unclean foods were an object lesson, a dramatic reminder that the God who is holy demands separation from what is not. He didn't bring them out of Israel just so they could act like Israelites. He brought them out of, I'm sorry, out of Egypt so they could act like Egyptians. He brought them out of Egypt so they could be Israelites, which is to say distinct from the surrounding nations and therefore reflective of the character of their distinctive and holy God. But here's the thing. Ever since Leviticus 11, there was attached to these food laws a ticking clock. They were provisional, preparatory, they, they served a good purpose until they finally encountered the one who had come to fulfill them. The one who had made them and had come to fulfill them. Of course, verse 19 is Mark's commentary. Jesus doesn't literally say the words, all foods are now clean. But remember, what's Mark's context? Where is he writing this? When is he writing this? Well, it's three decades later in the Roman Empire, surrounded by Gentiles. And as he's reflecting on the significance of Christ's words, he realizes he was effectively declaring all foods clean then. Now, this became a lot clearer to the earliest Christians. We, we read this in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 10. Peter sees a vision of a sheet of unclean animals rolling down like a scroll from heaven. And he hears a voice from heaven that doesn't say, avoid them, you good Jew. No, that says, 
kill and eat. And Peter is utterly scandalized. He's like, no way. I'm an observant Jew. I've never eaten anything impure or unclean in my life. And the voice responds, do not call impure what God has made clean. That was Peter's experience, a defining moment for the earliest Christians in understanding the food laws and this idea of Gentile inclusion. But what's relevant for our purposes is this. Peter was Mark's source. Remember that? Peter was Mark's primary eyewitness source. So no wonder Mark is recounting this story and is detecting in Jesus' words the sound of fulfillment, the sound of arrival. Here's what I mean by that. When you're driving to a city like Richmond, uh, you see road signs along the way pointing you toward your destination and telling you how much farther you have to go. The signs are helpful. You would get lost without them. You wouldn't make it to your destination. But wouldn't it be confusing if you arrived in downtown Richmond only to see at every corner a sign pointing you to Richmond? It wouldn't make any sense. Well, in a similar way, that the Old Testament was like a long, winding road with signs pointing the way to a new covenant in a new age ushered in by a new king. And 2,000 years ago, the divine GPS essentially said, you have reached your destination. The, the king is here. The new era has dawn, dawned. You can now take down the road signs. In his unique, you'll see in a in a minute, why I use the description unique. His unique and interesting book, God of All Things, my friend Andrew Wilson has a chapter simply titled Pigs. He writes, quote, I call it the pig paradox. On the one hand, no animal is dirtier, smellier, or uglier than a pig. On the other hand, they taste sensational. <laughs> Bizarrely, if you were to create a smell spectrum from the vilest stench to the most enticing aroma, pigs would find themselves at both ends of it, depending on whether it's before or after they've died. How can something that smells so bad when it's alive smell so great when it's not? How can death transform something from filthy and untouchable to fragrant and delightful? And then after discussing Peter's vision in Acts 10, and we might add Jesus' words in Mark 7, and especially the implications of those words for unclean Gentiles, Wilson writes, it's the pig paradox again. Death, in our case, the death of Christ, has taken that which is filthy and untouchable and made us fragrant and delightful. In Christ, pigs become bacon. You won't hear a better sentence in this sermon. <laughs> in Christ, pigs become bacon. Your food is clean. Your food is clean. Number two, your heart is not. Your food is clean. Number two, your heart is not. Verse 20, Jesus went on, 
What comes out of a person is what defiles them. For it is from within, out of a person's heart, that evil thoughts come. And then he lists 12 of them. Sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. It's a dizzying list, and it's meant to be. And if you hear a ring of familiarity in it, that's because the list is echoing the second table of the law. That is the the second half of the Ten Commandments. Here we see murder. That's commandment number five. Adultery, commandment number seven. Theft, number eight. Slander, number nine. Envy, number ten. And this catalog of evils is lengthy for a reason. Every sinner, Mark wants us to know. Mark's catalog here is longer than what appears in other gospels. Mark wants us to realize that every sinner is an author and has a body of work. This is the body of work, and it's prolific. Human beings are geniuses at many things. We don't have to go far to realize that human beings are amazing. What we can do, our creativity, what we can accomplish as those made in the image of God. But there is no genius in the human heart like the ability to invent sin. This is why John Calvin described the heart famously as a factory of idols. Your heart is a factory of idols, mass-producing, churning out attitudes and actions and things to replace God. See, the tentacles of sin have deformed us and disordered us. They've deformed our hearts and disordered our loves. God made us to know him and enjoy him and love him and worship him and live for him. But instead, we have gone our own way and lived for ourselves. We've mouthed the Lord's prayer, but the battle cry of our hearts, if we're honest, has been, Ours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. I mean, it can be so easy in our day and age to think of sin as a light and small and trifling thing. You can go down a grocery store aisle and see an ice cream flavor described as sinfully delicious. I mean, sin has been utterly trivialized and cheapened. But did you notice the term that Sheldon used earlier in his prayer of confession? Cosmic treason. See, I think we tend to think sin is just kind of outward naughtiness. Maybe a heavenly parking ticket. But no, according to the Bible, sin is cosmic treason. It's an insurrection in a human heart against the king of glory. If we're going to understand sin rightly in light of a passage like Mark 7, we've got to grasp at least two things about it. So these are subpoints. Number one, sin is more vertical than horizontal. So these are two things we have to grasp about sin in order to understand it the way God wants us to. Number one, sin is more vertical than horizontal. Now, don't mishear me. 
the horizontal effects of sin, that is its effect on other people, can be devastating. And some of you are still making your way through the rubble and the wreckage of ways that others have sinned against you heinously. So I'm not minimizing the horizontal effects of sin. But sin is not fundamentally horizontal. It is fundamentally vertical. King David, the man after God's own heart, gives voice to our predicament in Psalm 51, the the passage that Sheldon read before our prayer of confession, in which we read together responsively. For I know my transgressions, David confesses, and my sin is always before me, Psalm 51.4, against you, God. You only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. David is aware. David is not denying that he has also sinned against others. He sinned against Bathsheba. He sinned against her now dead husband Uriah. He sinned against the people of Israel that he's supposed to be an example to. But David also understands that first and foremost, he has offended the majesty of heaven. And it's the same with every one of our sins, whether big or seemingly small. Whether an action or just an attitude, every sin is an assault against the honor and the dignity and the majesty of our maker. You have never once in your life committed a small sin because you have never offended a small God. Sin is more vertical than horizontal. Second thing, is that sin is more internal than external. I mean, that's obviously the, th- the primary thrust of this passage. Sin is more internal than external. Your natural condition is deeper and more dire than what you may want to admit. That's why defilement doesn't have to worm its way into you. It's what comes out naturally. Because the thing to use the focus of this particular passage, the thing that has defiled your relationship with God, the thing that has breached your relationship with him is not your diet, it's your depravity. Which means, friends, that while our culture today in 2022 is enticing you to follow your heart, follow your heart, follow your heart, Jesus shows up and says, have you looked inside Friends, following your heart is the problem, not the solution. In both of these truths about sin, that it's vertical and that it's internal, both truths converge to reveal that the biggest problem in your life is you and me. Think how contradictory this is to the logic of the world. If you're a young person here, I want you to especially lean in and listen up right now because this is the air you breathe, okay? What Jesus is saying here contradicts what the world is whispering to you every single day in songs, movies, friends, whatever may be the case. This, again, is the air we breathe. It's the water we swim in. The world says, and the world will tell you, that the biggest problem in your life exists where? Outside of you. 
Something has wronged you. Something has, has made your life miserable. And again, I'm not minimizing that that's often true, but the world is saying the biggest problem is something that's happened to you. The biggest problem is something that exists out there. And where does the world say the solution resides? Within. So the problem is out there. The solution is in here. Explore yourself, discover yourself, embrace yourself, love yourself, express yourself. The Bible crashes into our experience and says the exact opposite. Jesus says, your biggest problem is not out there. Your biggest problem is in here. But here's the really good news of Christianity. The really good news that, that we get to champion and celebrate at RCBC the solution doesn't exist inside of us. While the world calls us to look within, Jesus directs our attention away from ourselves to some other place, to some other person, to him. He is the solution. The world says, follow your heart. Jesus shows up and says, no, 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 I got a better idea. Follow me. But the tentacles of sin, even in a regenerate heart. The tentacles of sin are so pervasive and they, 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 that they make us curve in on ourselves, which is why Sam Aubrey writes, I love this quote, the doctrine of total depravity is simply another way of saying there is no area of your life about which you can say, I don't need Jesus for that. Verse 23, all these evils come from inside and defile a person. So notice the, the shift here from verses 21 and 22 to verse 23. Jesus moves from cataloging these 12 evils to giving us their home address. Charles Spurgeon puts it vividly, as he always does. Quote, now that we have seen these evil beasts, he's referring to, to the, the 12 sins that are listed. Now that we have seen these evil beasts, we will go and look at their den. Let us make a journey there. No, you need not feel for your money to pay your fare. I'm not going to take you very far. I do not ask you to leave your homes or even your pews. There is not even need for you to stretch out your hand to feel for this foul nest of unclean birds. You can keep your hand upon your bosom and it will not be far off from the lair wherein the evil things lurk, ready to leap forth whenever occasion offers. The source from which these rivers of pollution proceed is the natural heart of man. Sin is not a splash of mud upon man's exterior. It is a filth generated within, in that factory of idols. To give you another word picture, think of a tube of toothpaste with black tar inside. That's kind of what our hearts are like. That's why it's never accurate or helpful to say that someone else is making you sin. My family will tell you that sometimes I do that. If I, if I grow impatient in my sin, I'll say something like, why are you making me lose my patience? But they didn't insert anything into the tube. 
Maybe they squeezed it a little bit. Maybe circumstances of life squeeze your heart, but what oozes out was there already. The Anglican J.C. Ryle, who was a contemporary of Spurgeon's in England, is also insightful when he observes. And I like this observation because he's getting at the, the social dynamic of this den of evil beasts that is our hearts. Quote, the wickedness of men is often attributed to bad examples, bad company, peculiar temptations, or snares of the devil. It seems forgotten that every man carries within him a fountain of wickedness. We need no bad company to teach us and no devil to tempt us in order to run into sin. We have within us the beginning of every sin under heaven. The seeds of all the evils here mentioned lie within us all. They may lie dormant all our lives. They may, may be kept down by fear of consequences, the restraint of public opinion, the dread of discovery, the desire to be thought respectable. I would add maybe church attendance, religiosity, living a morally upstanding life, going through the motions in order to please God and earn his favor. But every man, has within him the root of every sin. How do we respond to this really grim picture, this mirror of our hearts? Well, we respond the same way as David did in the psalm that we read, the psalm that I've already referenced who after praying those words, God against you, you only have I sinned, went on to pray, create in me a pure heart, O God. And, and notice the request. Create it. Not help me find one. Not assist me with one. But no, give me one. Like if I'm going to have a clean heart, uh, it's going to need to be a sovereign creation. This is what we do, brothers and sisters, when we stumble and fail. Not if, when we stumble and fail. Again, just contrast what David does and what we're summoned to do with what the world encourages us to do when we don't have it all together and when we fail. If we look to the world, the, the options are going to be basically two things. It's, it's going to be therapeutic venting, this kind of cathartic, self-help, emotional release, or the resolve to become a better you. This year, the resolutions are going to stick. This year, I'm going to get my act together. One approach is feeling-centered. The other is behavior-centered. But what they have in common is that both are self-centered. Meanwhile, Psalm 51 and Mark 7 crash into our experience and our misunderstanding as if from another world because they are. David in Psalm 51 is not on a couch venting to a therapist, but nor is he on a ladder trying to white knuckle his way up into the favor of God. He knows that any resolve to become a better you is just like trying to clean a floor with a dirty mop. 
This is 19th century pastor Sunday at RCBC, apparently. That's not in my notes, but I'm, I'm realizing it now because I quoted from Spurgeon. I quoted from J.C. Ryle. I promise I only have one more. Thomas, Thomas Chalmers, some of you may have heard of him, was a 19th century Scottish pastor who became well-known for a sermon titled The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. It's such a profound title. I'm going to say it again. The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. Here's what he says. It is seldom that any of our sinful tastes are made to disappear by a mere process of natural extinction or mental determination. But one taste may be made to give way to another and to lose its power entirely as the reigning affection of the heart. In other words, and I realize that's archaic language, he's saying the secret to killing your sin, the secret to destroying idols is not to remove them. It's to replace them. Idols, he's saying, are like weeds. How do you deal with weeds? Do you walk over to the shed and wheel out the lawnmower? No. To deal with weeds, you have to get down in the dirt and pluck them up one by one by one. But here's what Chalmers is saying. You can't simply uproot an idol, uproot one of these evil deeds mentioned in Mark 7, and wipe your hands off and walk away because it will grow back. You have to uproot, but you also have to plant something else in its place. A superior love in its place. The expulsive power of a new affection. This would be a great thing for you to discuss in your home groups this week. How can you not just remove sin, but replace sin with a superior love and a superior affection? What are some practical ways that you can do that hard work with others of uprooting and replanting so that your heart increasingly grows to love the things God loves and hates the things God hates rather than the reverse? Well, in conclusion, Jesus if you notice in this passage, he, he actually doesn't disagree with the Pharisees about the fact of our uncleanness. He totally agrees. He doesn't say, oh, you're overreacting to think that there's this category of being morally unclean. No, he agrees with them on the fact of it. He just disputes the source. Our hearts pump sin into every area of our lives. And this, friend, listen to me, this makes us unfit for the presence of a high and holy God, which is why that high and holy God came low to us. Jesus Christ is the only person in human history who had a perfectly pure heart and steadfast spirit, to use the words of David's prayer of confession. In fact, speaking of prayers of confession, Jesus is the only human in history never to have to pray one because he never once had a sin to confess. But he marched willingly to the cross and on the cross, he 
was treated. This is the white-hot center of Christianity, is that on the cross, Jesus was treated as impure. Forsaken by God, crucified outside the camp, treated as impure, getting get it deserving and receiving, not deserving, but receiving the leper's treatment, as we thought about way back in Mark chapter 1, so that we who have turned away from our sins and put our trust in him alone might experience not just the miracle of regeneration, getting a new heart, but also the miracle of renovation, getting a purified heart after the Holy Spirit moves in and takes up residence from within. Oh, friends, we've looked long at sin this morning. But we should look a lot longer and meditate every day of the week and every day of our lives at the Savior who came to solve it. Rather than smothering our ears with a pillow or smashing a smoke alarm, we don't have to settle. We are freed from having to settle for mere religion that treats symptoms because Jesus has diagnosed our deepest problem, but instead of leaving us to solve it ourselves, he's offered himself as the solution. Call out to him in faith, friend, and he will change you from the inside out. Let's pray. Oh Lord, once again, we pray that you would create in us pure hearts, and renew a steadfast spirit within us. Restore to us the joy of your salvation. Grant us a willing spirit to sustain us. And help us to uproot our sins and our idols and to replace them with the things of God and the wonder of his gospel. May we feed on it every day until we see you face to face. In your beautiful name we pray, amen.